Welcome to No Ordinary, Ordinary women. women, the podcast where two ordinary broads talk about extraordinary women, the good, the bad, and, and the, the bad shit crazy. Hi, Rose. Hey, Lynn. Hi, We're back. Miss you so much. I missed you too. How was your new year? How was your it holiday, was Christmas and New Year? It was really, really good. How was yours? Mine was oh, mine was so nice. I went and visited my son and his partner in New York, um, and it was the first time that I didn't host like all my kids. Yeah, like I think ever, and yeah, really ever, because usually they come home at least some of them, if not all of them. And so I went there, and I like I mean I helped out, I did cooking, and I cleaned up and did stuff like that, but. Um, I kind of got to relax a lot more than I usually do. That's awesome. So it was really nice. I did a whole puzzle. My son's like, you're nuts with that puzzle. And I'm like, <laughs> I love puzzles. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> so what'd you do? Um, we actually stayed home for Christmas. We hosted Chris's family, and then we just stay home on Christmas Day. With... What'd you do? His family on Christmas Eve? Yeah, they came over on Christmas Eve. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it was our year to host, so we did that. It was a good time. Did his brother and sister-in-law, your sister-in-law, everybody come? Yeah, and his parents. Um, we Did they spend out. the night or they all drive home? No, they all drive home. Oh, okay. I don't have anywhere to spend the night. That's true. <laughs> That's true. And New Year's, we just stayed home. I don't think we did anything for New Year's. I think I went to bed at like 9 o'clock. Yeah, I actually stayed up till midnight. I went to my dad's. We oh, celebrated right. Christmas yeah. with my dad on New Year's, and we went to my dad's, and um, myself and John, and then um, my sister and her family went. And so we went up to my dad's and had spent New Year's. It was nice. It was quiet. Yeah. You know, we didn't do anything crazy. But yeah. Stayed up till midnight and was like, all right, good night. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even bother. I thought about it, and I was like, yeah. I know. I don't like to be tired on the next day, you know. I know. Well, I, I ended up sleeping sleeping I woke up and I said to John what time is it because I heard that he was awake and he goes 9 45 I was like oh my god I never <laughs> sleep that late at my dad's I was embarrassed I was like oh my god that's so funny <laughs> my dad had just told my sister will you go wake up your sister oh really <laughs> yeah but that's then so she funny. heard us moving around so it was like okay I was like uh so yeah, yeah the, the start of the year has been a little rough. <laughs> oh my god, your poor family! I feel I so sorry. Double ear infection and COVID, and Chris has COVID, or Chris had COVID, and then now Joseph has COVID. Oh my god! So I don't even. I I'm cannot really hoping even... the girls don't get it. So far, Joseph just has like a runny nose. Yeah, that's all he's had. Has he lost taste or anything like that? No, I mean he hasn't said anything. He was really hoping to get COVID though, because we. Chris got it on Tuesday, and then Joseph started obsessively taking his temperature. <laughs> Why? He's like, it went up a degree. <laughs> it went down a degree. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you don't have COVID. <laughs> Why does he want to have it? Because so he doesn't have to go to school. Oh, so we can stay home and yeah. play video games. That's, yeah, yeah, that of makes course. sense. So that. when his test came back positive yesterday, he was like sniffling and, and blowing his nose. I was like, you should probably just take a test. And when it came back positive, he was like, trying not to act like he was excited <laughs> i was like okay but he's he's not feeling bad though not like you were because no. you were feeling horrible well i think i was feeling horrible because of my um double ear infection and i've been having like a lot of head like but do you think that's all related to the well i guess COVID isn't isn't like well i had congestion really in yeah. your head usually i had the congestion 
last the week before. Um, and I think that's how I got the ear infection. And then I got COVID. I was diagnosed with the ear infection on like Tuesday and I got COVID Wednesday. So you probably already had it when you went to the doctor. Or no, you wouldn't have because they did they test you at the doctor? They tested me at work. I took oh, okay. a PCR and a um rapid, rapid on Tuesday wow. morning and I didn't have it. I you know, I I'm just it's so many people I know got COVID over the holidays. And I mean it makes sense. It was insanely cold. Everybody was right, inside, inside. Yeah. and, you know, people were gathering like they used to. You know, nobody was being that cautious. I mean, my family was being cautious before the holidays. We were all masking when we were out at grocery stores and stuff. Oh, yeah. Just because I don't want to be that one that gives my dad COVID. You know, I'm like, that's my thing. I don't want to be the one that gives it right, to him. Or yeah. I don't want anybody to give it to him for that matter. Yeah. So, like, if I went to the grocery store or to the grocery store or anything like that, I wore a mask. But, um, you know, it's it's just – it's like so much. I'm, I'm – I just – I'm, I know everybody said this a million times, but it's just I'm so over it all. I know. Me too. So. But it was fine. It was just I had like a little cold. Chris so. Had a little, I'm sorry. Bigger cold. But. but <laughs> <laughs> a bigger cold. A, a bigger cold. cold. A bigger cold. <laughs> um, so your resolutions. We talked about it last time. Oh, yeah. What are your resolutions? Did you confirm? Did you like firm up your decision on your resolu- so resolutions? So mine were. um I wasn't. I was going to do dry January, and uh-huh. I'm not eating sugar for January. Oh, okay. Mostly because when I don't drink, I usually eat a lot, a lot more sugar. So I was like, if I do both, then that'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't just gain like 40 pounds because I'm eating like all the sugar. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I've been doing that, and I I did have a cupcake on Chris's birthday last on Saturday. Well, um, you had to. You were obligated. You're his my, wife. The only joy in my life. <laughs> And you couldn't even taste it. And I, yeah, and I lost my smell and taste um, with COVID, so I mm. couldn't even taste it. I ate a 19-point cupcake on Weight Watchers. And, oh, my God. 19 points and you couldn't even taste it. And I couldn't it's even just, taste it. It seems it. like you sh- it should not have calories if you can't taste I it. I know. I agree. Yeah, that's really sucks. So, but I've been doing really well with, with those things. I did. I was telling myself, oh, maybe I will um, make my bed, like do the resolution uh-huh. that you did and make my bed every day. And once I got COVID, I was like, uh, I'm like I haven't done it. I've done it like twice. <laughs> I've had to wash my bed sheets like four times. <laughs> oh, God. Ugh. Yeah. How yeah. about you? Um, I'm doing dry January. I'm not against enjoying it. Against your will. I sw- <laughs> against my will. I swear that every show I've watched on TV since I started Everybody's drinking wine. They're like drinking, yeah. And like I'll be sitting watching TV and I'll see somebody with a glass of wine. I'm like, oh, that looks good. And I'll get myself a glass of wine, you know? Yeah. And I won't even think about it. I'll see it. I'm like, oh, yeah, it looks good. And I'm like, why is everybody drinking on all the shows I'm watching? I need to watch like Nickelodeon or something <laughs> yeah. next month. I was like, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I'm doing that. And and I'm back on Weight Watchers. Um, so, and then the other thing I'm, I'm doing is I want to, I haven't really started doing it. I was trying to, over the Christmas break, do a course on LinkedIn learning about oh, yeah. social media, but it was just like, I, I, this happens every time I do, I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this course. And I start doing it and I, I get like really confused by it. I'm like, this makes no sense. And I don't, like, I feel like I'm doing something wrong. So I need to kind of look into it and I don't know, I've got to figure it out. But anyway, so that's another thing is to improve my social media skills. Oh, that's a good one. So speaking of the dry January, today we're doing a mocktail, y'all. It's really good. Yeah. From what I can taste. <laughs> it's a, Yeah. Rose, Rose can barely taste it. but it's And it's like I bought um, 
the um, Reed's ginger beer, which is like, and if you've had this, you know, it's really like very gingery. And that's why I like it. But I got the zero sugar one, which is super yummy um, because we're both, you know, trying not to have sugar. And then so what you do is you and in this recipe, you squeeze um, an orange into the drink, a fresh orange. And I use Cara Cara oranges, which are really good. And um, then you pour, put a little mint, fresh mint, and pour the ginger beer to top it and over ice and garnish with some, uh, with a orange wedge. That's so, mint. Is that mint? And there's mint in there. Did I say mint? I don't know. I, didn't I, I can't remember if I said mint. But anyway, and there's fresh really mint good. in there. It's super yummy. I can't wait to put vodka or bourbon in it or something. <laughs> All I can taste is that it's really sweet, which... It's really not that sweet. Really? That, it tastes really it's sweet. It's mostly... It's more like the bite of the ginger. I can't taste. I literally can't taste it. Ugh. So, yeah. So no more like um, for us, at least for now, no more. Um, um, what's the name of that place that we were getting the pizza stuff from? Oh, Fabio's. Fabio's. <laughs> I love Fabio's. Yeah, we can't for eat that for weeks. now. I've got to I got to get back into some clothes. So who, know. You, who are you doing today, Rose? I've got a good one. So this is the one I was telling you that. I was going to read the book oh, over yeah, the yeah, yeah. Um, break. Uh-huh. And so I did. Well, I read most of the book like last week. <laughs> Actually, I read most of the book like the last like five days. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, but it was it's a really good book, but it was hard. I usually read at night. Uh-huh. Um, and this isn't the kind of book you want to read at night because I didn't want to have nightmares. Oh. So if I wake up in the middle of the night, if I want to read something, it's not. This. Uh, you know, yeah. what I mean? see, I always read before I go to bed. I have a hard time reading other times of the day. I can't so even do imagine. I. Yeah, but um, so it helped that I had COVID because I was able to do a lot of yeah. Reading. There you go, <laughs> and finish my story. <laughs> <laughs> and we're recording late. We usually record on Thursdays, but we're recording on Monday because Lynn got COVID. Lynn, nothing. Schedule. Um, sorry, I'm eating my orange because I didn't think I was going to have to talk. But <laughs> yeah, so we couldn't record on Thursday because Rose had COVID. And um, I was like, I'm not getting in that little room with you. <laughs> so if the editing sucks in this, it's because Rose had like a minute and a yeah. half to edit it. <laughs> and I have to write my story for Thursday still. So, OK. So before I begin, I want to give a little disclaimer. Um, the book that I read uses the terms Jew and ghetto a lot. Uh-huh. And I know <laughs> you see my mic is like <laughs> slowly falling. Um, I know that's those terms aren't really... Acceptable, Acceptable right? yeah. yeah, these days. Um, and so I am going to use the terms because she used them and I'm like honoring her, you know, and she just wrote the book. So it's um, but for the story, I'm using those terms, but I know that they're not acceptable. Okay. And, you know, I'm, I am sensitive to that. I'm not trying to be offensive or anything. Beginning at a young age, Tola Grossman could identify the types of guns by their sounds. Pistols popped, rifles cracked and machines gun machine guns gave off chaotic bursts of gunfire. Tola was born on September 1st, 1938, exactly one year before Hitler marched into Poland and triggered World War II. Oh, you said Did that you like so that? well. I've been practicing. I'm like, Chris, does it sound okay? World War II. Chris said that right, World right, right. War... That's we're not drinking. <laughs> he was saying that World War II is easier to say than World War World I. War One yeah. is harder, I yeah. think. Yeah, definitely. But still, when World War, it's hard to I say <laughs> together. <laughs> they should have thought about that. It's better than hearth. <laughs> 
You mean hearth? Hearth. Yeah, hearth. <laughs> in 1940, the Nazis invaded Taumashuf Mashuvisky. <laughs> That's the name of the town. I'm sure I said that wrong. Where Tola lived with her family and created a ghetto where they forced all the Jews in town to live. Her family were among 15,000 Jews cramped into... Okay, get this. 15,000 Jews cramped into six four-story buildings, each flat housed between 20 to 60 people. <gasps> oh, my God. In, like, God. a two-bedroom flat. Yeah. Oh, my God. But they, like, literally sleeping on top of each other. Yeah, they were. All the Jews were required to identify themselves by wearing a white armband adorned with a blue star of David. Failure to comply was punishable by death. Mm. From the ages of two to four, so she was one when the war started, mm-hmm. and they invaded her town. From the ages of two to four, Tola lived under the kitchen table because there was no room anywhere else in the flat. She did not go outside and learn to identify people by their boots and their voices. One day, the soldiers came in and rounded up her grandmother and her grandmother's brother and took them down into the street and executed them right in front of their building. Oh, my God. Anyone over the age of 50 was regarded as ancient by the Germans and an unnecessary burden, so they were executed. She said, like, she didn't see a gray-haired person. She doesn't remember seeing a gray-haired person until she was, like, came to America. Oh, my God. But they were selling some serious hair dye. Good God. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's scary. Yeah. It's, what if you went? I mean, well, they. I don't know if they knew your age, but like, what if you just happen to gray early? <laughs> Are you afraid? <laughs> Lord knows what's going to happen in this country. You're like, oh god. Yeah. I mean, this country. You never know where we're going here. Yeah, you would have been offed. Yeah. Tola lived with the constant fear that her parents would be murdered in front of her, or that they would leave and never come back. She went to bed every night thinking that she might be the next to be murdered. Ugh. And she's a toddler, thinking this. Oh my god. To top off the constant fear of death and and abandonment, she was also starving. Everyone in the ghetto was malnourished. Oh my God! The Germans, I know it is. The Germans rationed food, and every person was supposed to get six pounds of bread. And I forgot to put the number of ounces. It just says and ounces of sugar (laughs) per month. But as the months went on, the food supplies diminished. So Mm. I don't know why they got sugar. They got bread in a few ounces sugar of sugar. really was cheap or something? What I don't know. Do they, like, they, they dipped the bread in the sugar. Really? Yeah. Mm. Because of this, Tola developed slowly and had trouble walking and didn't walk well until the age of four. Think about it. There's no nutrients in that whatsoever. At all. Nothing. And then she's stuck under this table. She literally did not see outside. Ugh. She wasn't allowed to go outside at all. The only hope for being under the table is she might have gotten some crumbs. Yeah, well, I'm sure nobody had any crumbs. Yeah, that's true. You probably like ate and didn't. Yeah, I would be like, I can't even know. I know. Other than the lack of vitamins at an important time in her life, she was also basic, basically living under the table, so her bones and muscles didn't get a chance to develop as they should have. Tola remembers being so hungry that she would walk around licking the walls in their apartment. Oh. And when her mom would ask her if she was licking the walls, Tola would deny it and her mother would smack her. But as soon as her mother turned around, she'd go back to licking the walls. Which probably had lead paint. Right. And she was, Ugh. I mean, she was so little. And she can remember being that hungry that she was licking walls. Oh, my God. I mean, I can't, I mean, obviously, we can't even imagine that kind of no, hunger. No, I can't imagine that kind of hunger. 
because I'm hungry right now and I am not <laughs> going to be like a wall. I mean, You're not there yet? I, no, not yet. I mean. <laughs> By the time we're done with this story, you will be. Yeah, I will be. I will be. <laughs> so things were getting worse in the ghetto and parents were forced to send their children out at night to beg or barter with the Polish people for food. So there's the the ghetto, which is surrounded by barbed wire. Mm-hmm. And then on the outside of the ghetto are, um, th- this is in Poland, and there are Polish people living in the buildings right next door. Mm-hmm. And apparently the Polish hated the Jews just as much as the Germans did. And so they they treated them just as poorly. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Um, but they would, like, turn them in and stuff. You know, they they weren't. Well, I don't want to say all of them, but a lot of them weren't nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the children were smaller, there was a less less chance that they would be spotted by the soldiers. So that's why they sent their children out, because uh, they could hide and kind of get around, you know? Probably in the shadows and stuff. Right. Yeah. But there was um, an Austrian soldier named Johann Kropfitsch who would wait near a secret entrance to the, entrance to the ghetto and shoot children as they returned <gasps> with their bounty. Oh, my God. Johann was a 39-year-old Nazi police officer with cold, psychotic eyes who loved to hunt at night. He prided himself on being some kind of ga- gamekeeper whose job it was to catch and kill Jewish children. Oh, my God. After the war, he was hanged as a war criminal, and Tola said... What a pity he only died once. He deserved to be killed a thousand times over. Oh, yeah. Seven days after the Germans seized Talmashuf. Say that again. <laughs> Talmashuf. Talmashuf. It's, so it's spelled T-O-M-A-S-Z-O-W. But that's oh. it's pronounced Talmashuf. Shuf. Okay. I know. I have it. Yeah, phonetically, phonetically written out every time I have to say it because I was like, <laughs> "You could." I, I I've done that with hard words. When you too. look at the word, it looks like Tomasau. Oh. <laughs> um. So anyway, seven days after the Germans seized Talmashuf, they rounded up three hundred Jews whom they deemed the most intelligent, including rabbis, lawyers, teachers, and doctors. And they did this to neutralize the threat of the brightest minds getting together together together. <laughs> to develop a plan to fight back. So mm. they, you know what I mean? Yeah. That, no, yeah. They, yeah, they didn't want anybody being smarter than them. Right, exactly. Which probably wasn't very hard, but. What do you mean? Because they were stupid. Oh, I thought you <laughs> meant the Jews were stupid. No, I was no. Like, the, the German, I mean, like, what the, I mean, I don't know. I just, you can't be smart if you do something like that and think it's okay. I don't care who right, you are. Right, yeah, I agree. They were sent to the first concentration camp and only 13 of the 300 survived. Oh, my gosh. So that was like the first. So they called them selections. And um, there's like different selections each, like every few months or every few weeks. And so the first selection was like all the old people. Oh, my God. It's like freaking. um, What's the. Oh, my God. What I can't think of it right now. Hunger Games. You yeah, know, like, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it really is. <laughs> well, I couldn't think of the name of it. So this is like the second selection. is killing all the intelligent people. Tola's father was forced to become a police officer who took, who took orders from the Germans. He detested the position because he was forced to do things that were re- repulsive. Ugh. The only positive thing that he would sometimes find... The only positive thing was that he would sometimes find out information that could help them survive. 
she has a clear memory of her father bursting into the house one day and sitting down and sobbing. He said, I took them to the truck. I had to help them climb up. The truck was full, full of old people. They were sitting right at the back next to the tailgate. We just looked at each other. I saw the look in their eyes. They knew where they were going. I couldn't save them. There was nothing I could do. And he was talking about his parents, (gasps) Emmanuel and Pearl. Oh, my God. And a few days before that, um, he and like a bunch of other men from the village had been forced to um, dig a mass grave. Mm -hmm. And it was for them. They they took the parents and like put them by. That's how they executed them. They take them to the grave, put them right next to the um, edge, shoot them, and they just fall in. Oh, God. So he had to dig his parents' grave and then put them on the truck. And the Germans oh played mind games like that because they were trying to oh, cause scary. as much torture oh, yeah. and yeah, and scare them as much as possible. Soon after that, things got even worse. The ghetto had no had had no electricity for two years, so after dark, it was completely black oh outside. But suddenly, the streetlights around the perimeter of the ghetto were turned on, and you'd think like people would be like, "Oh, that's great," you know, like. Maybe things are looking up, but they knew, they already knew better than to think that they knew it was something bad. And now they knew that they would have nowhere to hide when the, like, they sent their oh. kids out. Um, Nazi volunteers came in from Ukraine dressed in all black uniforms, carrying submachine guns, and they just started shooting anyone who was out on the streets. On October 30th, 7,500 Jews from Talmashuf were torn from their families and forced onto trains headed to Treblinka. Treblinka. Have you heard of Treblinka? It was one of the first um, camps built by the Nazis. I don't think I've heard of it. And they killed two million Jews there, and they had six gas chambers. Upon arrival, they were all gassed and cremated, 7,500 of them from that town. Holy shit. The next day, four-year-old Tola awoke to rifles, rifle butts smashing her front door open. They had finally come for her. I, like, cried when I read that part, like, because she was, she's writing the book. She wrote the book. Yeah. And, like, f- from her voice, like, I don't know. It yeah. was just really, like, powerful. Yeah, you're, like, into it. Yeah, she said, like, you're like, no. Yeah, she's yeah. like, they finally, they finally came for me. Oh, God. And it was so sad. <sighs> The remaining families were forced out of their homes at gunpoint by German soldiers while the bellowing of um, Ali Juden Raus, which means all Jews out. Mm -hmm. That's what they would say on the um, blowhorns in the streets to get all everyone to come out of their apartments. Bullhorns. Blowhorns. Do you say (laughs) blowhorns? Isn't that what it's called? I think it's a bullhorn, isn't it? I don't know. It said blowhorns. Oh, maybe. I thought it was called a bullhorn. I could be wrong. I'm usually not, but... (laughs) (laughs) Totally kidding. I'm usually wrong. (laughs) I'll look it up. But anyway, go ahead. Oh, my God. Is this going to be another hearth? (laughs) No, but I think... I mean, if it's spelled blow, I might have just always misheard it and thought it was bull. I don't know why. Or maybe... I mean, it's written in here, and it's not, like, underlined or anything. So bullhorn is something. I could have. It could have just been somebody real country going to bullhorn. <laughs> it's a bullhorn. I thought it's a bullhorn. You know what I mean? Or maybe it is because there's. It looks like a bull. Oh, there is a bullhorn and there is a blowhorn. Okay. So a bullhorn sound is. That's the thing they blow, right? Wait, hold on. 
I just, my sound's off on my computer. The bullhorn sounds like this. Oh, wait a minute. Daggone it. Daggone it, Lynn. Here we go. Why can't I get it to, of course, now I can't get it to play. <laughs> All right, that's okay. Dang it, But Rose. that's, blowhorn, a bullhorn is something you blow, and a blowhorn is something you talk through? I thought a bullhorn was a thing you talk through. No. But it, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's like playing, but it's, nothing's coming out. Am I, oh, my sound is still off. Son of a biscuit eater. Oh, my Hold on. gosh. Stand by. Here we go. Or not. <laughs> Never mind. I guess it's not going to play for me. All right. That's okay. I don't know why. It'll start playing as soon as I yeah. don't, I don't <laughs> as soon want as I it start to. talking. Yeah. So I don't know. They're both something. So whatever. Okay. Anyway, Tola and her mother walked down the street while the Nazis yelled and their dogs snarled. Tola had never felt so small. The soldiers seemed so big and scary. And they had these dogs who were growling and oh. snarling and baring their teeth. That'd be so scary for a little kid. I know. They're probably bigger than she is. Yeah. Especially since she's, like, really malnourished, you know? Yeah. They lined up the Jews like they were in a parade, and they had to stand completely still and quiet. She could hear other children crying, but her mother had taught her not to cry because it would only make things worse for them. Mm -hmm. Tola could see bodies and blood everywhere, but they couldn't stop where they would be next. Husbands were torn from their wives. Children searched for their parents. There was utter chaos of blood, screaming, and tears, but the march went on. They were marched to the hospital courtyard and lined up. At this point, her father joined them. He was a police officer, so he had been off, like, also getting people down to uh, march. Okay, right. Um. There was a soldier sitting at a wrought iron gate checking everyone's papers to determine whether they were qualified to work or if they were worth preserving. Mm. Tola was in her mother's arms with her arms wrapped tightly around her mother's neck. She could feel the tension as they got closer to the gate. She knew her mother was terrified because she could feel her chest heaving in and out. Mm. Tola's four- and five-year-old cousins clung onto the back of her mama's dress. A few minutes earlier, her mother's sister had been led off by the Gestapo and told the girls to stay with their aunt. She begged her sister to save them. I guess I don't know why they took her, but they left the kids, and she was like, please mm -hmm. don't let them die. Keep them with you. <sighs> Ahead of them was yet was another family. The man handed over his documents, and the officer said, you only have documents for four. Why do you have six? And the man replied, I'm taking my younger sister and her son. They are strong, and they are going to work. The officer flew into a rage as the conversation went back and forth, and finally he said, links, which meant you go to the left. And left was where you died. Oh, no. So who, to the guy or to the woman? To in the guy in front of them with, with his family. He was The saying, whole family went to the left? Yeah. <gasps> oh, my God. <clears throat> because he had, yeah, because he had documents for four people, but he was lying and trying to bring six people through. Oh, my God. And so he, you know. The, and they're watching the this. The German like, guys. Oh, my like, God. Yeah. yeah. And so the they're right behind him. Mm. So the man led his family through the gate and to the left, where they sat on the ground and huddled together, waiting for their the end of their lives. And Tola was, could just see him, like, through the gate. Mm. So when Tola's family walked up to the table, the s soldier snapped and said, how many? And in that moment, her mother had to make a decision that would haunt her for the rest of her life. She reached behind her and pushed her nieces away and said, three. Wretched, he replied, which means right. 
the officer replied without even looking at their papers. Tola looked back and saw her two little cousins standing there alone until someone walked up and took them away. They were never seen again. <gasps> so in that second, she had to decide, like, it's... Because she was doing, she was going to do the same thing ultimately. Right. Like, if she tried to bring five people in and they, they all would have died. Yeah. And so oh she had God. to decide to save her own child and husband. Oh, my God. I can't even... I cannot even imagine. And then he didn't even ask for her papers. So at four years old, Tola did not understand the gravity of the moment. But years later, her mother opened up to her and said, He didn't even open the papers. I killed my sister's children. I forced them to let go of me. How can I forget their faces? I oh killed them. Oh, oh, God. I got chicken skin just like I can't even. That. It's so awful. I can't, I can't even imagine. I, I honestly don't. I don't know how I would do that. I, I mean, but I feel like people were, I don't know. I mean, what she was going through made her a harder person than her mother. I think, you know, just oh, the yeah. shit they'd already oh, been for through. for sure, yeah. Right? So I feel like that's how she made that decision. I can't even, like, you and I can't wrap our brain around having to make that oh, decision. And But I feel like she was probably hardened. Not that it was easy for her, but she was hardened by her, the life she And she, she was had living. to make the decision in, like, a split second. You know what I mean? Like, either I risk saving my sister's two kids and killing the, re- the, whole, the whole entire family, family right? Or... Right, and she I get rid of them, and she could have totally said five, and he wouldn't even open the. But right. you know, he would have opened the paperwork if she would have said five, right, and there's yeah. one paperwork for three. So it's like, so she, yeah, she had to live with that for the rest of oh her life, God. knowing that, like, what if, what if I had just said five and he let us go, and they were with me and I didn't kill him? Oh my God, I can't even imagine. Until her dying day, her mother was tormented by the hypothetical "what if" questions. Hmm. What if she had said there were a group of five instead of three? Would they still be alive? But that day they were forced to make decisions quickly and her immediate priority was to get her family through the next few dangerous hours. So after the group of people in that selection were killed, the Grossmans and everyone else who was sent to the right were kept alive to clean up the Nazis' killings. Tola's father had to dig graves for his friends and neighbors and clean the blood off the streets. Tola and her mother worked at a—it was like this old factory or house um, where they took all the belongings of the Jewish people they had killed— and they put it in here and they separated it, Tola and her mom and a bunch of other people, separated the belongings and then shipped them to Germany and they used them. Like, they used everything. They didn't throw anything away. They, like, reused them. So, like, them upcycled to, like, everything. Yeah. Yeah. But they were, like, I guess I guess because it was a war, you know, they yeah. were in war. And so well, yeah, like, cause every little what thing. was a story I did? Oh, Leonardo. Um Kanchuli, yeah. When she like had sold her pots that she had cooked the people in. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. She yeah. donated them to the. For she the gave war. them the medal for yeah, the war. So I it's remember that. Pro- probably that sort of thing. Exactly. Seven months after the big deportation, that was when they took like that whole group of people. There were only about nine hundred Jews left, in oh my god, I didn't write it out. Thomas Souf. <laughs> I didn't write it out for that one. Food was less scar- scarce, 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 <laughs> and the rules, <laughs> scarce, Earth. Earth. and the rules relaxed slightly. Physically, Tola and her parents were slightly better, but the psychological stress remained the same. They were still forbidden to leave the block without permission. Oh. 1943 brought a little hope to the block. Pro- posters were put up offering a chance for the people, the Jewish people, the opportunity to be transferred to the Holy Land. They started. 
They stated that anyone with relatives in Palestine who wished to participate should register immediately. There was talk around the block that it might be a trick, but many had heard that they, there, there was a prisoner exchange agreement negotiated between the Germans and the British, who were at that time responsible for administering the Holy Land. Oh, wow. And so they ultimately thought it was real and people began registering. Because Tola's father was in on the um, police force, he was able to get them on the list by, like, bribing someone. Oh, my gosh. And That's great. Yeah, and so, like, I everyone mean, around the block was, be. like, excited. Like, the moods, like, changed, you know. Yeah. It was, she remembers people being, like, in good spirits because, obviously, that never happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but sometime later... Tola's father found out that it was actually a ruse by the Germans, and those who had registered were actually being shipped to another concentration camp or killed. Oh, my Lord. So they were, they like did these like psychological games with them and fucked with them all the time just to like have the control and power. Using the last of their money, her father was able to bribe a German sh- soldier to get them off the list, and he ran around the block banging on doors warning everyone else about the plan. And so mm. other people in the block were able to get their names off, but obviously still a bunch didn't. Jeez. On January 5th, 1943, the Ukrainian and German troops encircled the ghetto and loaded hundreds of Jewish people onto carts and trucks, promising them that they were going to the Holy Land. Sadly, only 67 Jews ever made it to the Holy Land after being exchanged as German POW. The... Others were gunned down a few miles from Talmashuf, and the remainder were sent to the gas chambers of Treblinka. A few months later, the words Ali Juden Raus. Oh, that's when they all Jews out or something. Rang out once again on German blowhorns. I have blowhorns again. Okay, so that must be what it is. All the people on the block lined up on the street, and the soldiers called out 36 names and said that those 36 people were to remain behind, and the remaining 650 would be getting on a train. Tola and her parents were on the list of 36. Soon, everyone but the 36 were loaded on the train and taken away. And they had no idea what that meant. Like, are you going to keep us here to kill us? Are these other people going somewhere good? And yeah, we're like it's such a big number. I yeah. mean, what a difference in right. Oh my gosh! Like why? Why thirty six? That's such a weird number. Too. Yeah. Um, the remaining Jews were locked in a building. So the thirty six were locked in a building while the Germans went around and shot everyone who had refused to leave or was too sick to leave their homes. So like old people or right. you know, well not old people because they were all dead. They're all but, dead. Yeah. Um, anyone sick or some people just were like I'm done like I I don't care I'm not leaving yeah I'm not going and they just chose to get shot they then told the remaining Jews that they were to clean up everything all the bodies and blood everywhere they did not want any evidence left that there were war crimes committed in Talmashuf so for the next three months four-year-old Tola helped her parents bury bodies scrub bloodstains and clean houses until the town was spotless four years old Oh, my God. I can't. <laughs> I can't even imagine. I know. Four years after the Germans entered Talmashuf, they had filled, fulfilled their intention. They had ethically cleansed the Jews completely. The Germans called it Juden Rain, or it, which means Jew peer or cleansed of Jews. Once they were done, they thought that they—once they were done, they thought they would for sure be killed, Tola and her parents— 
because there was nothing left for them to do. And Germans didn't have use for, like, yeah. anyone who couldn't work or, yeah. or do something for them. Nobody's getting a free ride from them. Yeah. <laughs> Soon after, the Nazis were going around banging on doors, telling everyone to pack one small bag and assemble on the streets. They told them that they would be going to Star... I didn't write this out. Star... Star... Starachowice, a city about 70 miles away. Of course, no one believed them because the Germans were known to play cruel jokes to fill them with hope so they Mm -hmm. would cooperate. But as they drove out past the cemetery and out of Talmashuf, they all had a little hope, a little hope that maybe they were going somewhere better. This was the first time Tola had ever been out beyond the barbed wire in her entire life. Mm. She described seeing peasants harvesting the fields and loading straw onto horse-drawn carriages. All normal sights unless you were a little Jewish girl born into a town where Nazis ruled. When they pulled up to the labor camp, it was surrounded by barbed wire, just like Talmashuf, but there were large towers with huge guns and guards. You see those towers and those guns, Tola, her mother said? From there, the guards can always observe you. You must always behave in a way that you won't be shot. Yes, Mama, replied Tola. Oh, my Tola. God. No stress there. Yeah. Holy shit. Can you imagine telling a four-year-old that? Like, yeah. thinking about my kids, my kids would be like, what? Mom? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, they're, they weren't raised that way, but... Yeah. Tola remembers the labor camp being nicer and cleaner than the squalor that they had lived in in Talmashuf. They were put into family barracks, and for the first time, Tola had her own bed. Oh, my gosh. I know. There were four camp labor camps in Star... I'm positive I'm saying that wrong. It supplied a third of all munitions for the German military. In the mornings, Tola's parents would leave for the factory early, and Tola would be out on her own until they returned late at night. She found some kids to play with outside, but they always wanted to play Nazis and Jews. Oh, my god! And these were, like, mostly boys. And they they always made Tola be the Jew because she was, like, the smallest and she was a girl. Children tend to want to be the aggressor or the powerful one in games and so they made the only girl and the one that they saw as the weakest a prisoner they would chase her with sticks and say stop you dirty jew or we'll kill you and hit her gently with the stick once they caught her sometimes they would get carried away and hurt her and she would run away into the barracks and hide until her parents came home but she hated being alone and would always rather be afraid than be alone which is a typical characteristic of someone who's been abused Tola ran around the labor camp playing with friends from sunup until around 10 or 11 at night when her parents would get home with a little food for her. Until early one morning when her parents heard that the soldiers were rounding up all the children in the camp. Tola's father had created a trapdoor in the ceiling which he hid behind a clothes rack. He quickly grabbed Tola and shoved her into the hole and helped her mom into the door and quickly closed the flap and arranged the clothes in front of it again. Tola's mother had her hand clasped over Tola's mouth so tight that there was no way she could have made a sound. Tola, you've got to stay completely silent. It's absolutely essential. Do not make a sound. If you do, we both die. They heard the soldiers come into the room and yell at her father to leave. And suddenly they start spraying gunfire at the ceiling. Bullets whistled past Tola's body, slamming into the beams of the attic above her head. But they didn't hit her or her mother, and they soon heard the soldiers leave the room. Oh, my God. How did she manage to not get hit? Uh, this family has like 20 lives. That like, is to, crazy. The, the way that they've survived, it's just pure like luck. By the skin, literally yeah, that literally is going to be like how in the world, like 
they sprayed bullets all over the area they were hiding, but they didn't get right. shot. Like and it like she could feel it like going past her body. Mm. This next part is rough. Through a hole in the roof, Tola was able to look down into the square and saw children being ripped from their mothers. She saw her friends crying and screaming, but the worst thing she saw, and the thing that would forever play over and over in her mind, was when she saw a mother holding onto her baby while a soldier tugged on the baby's legs until the baby was dismembered. <gasps> they then just tossed his body parts onto the truck with the rest of the children. Oh, my God. She saw that. And she was, what, four or five at this point? Yeah. Oh, my God. I couldn't, I, like, felt, like, physically ill when I read that. Oh, God. She said that, like, still plays in her mind to this day. She can still see it. Yeah, this is why I can't, I won't go to the, um, I can't go to the museum for the Auschwitz, Auschwitz, I can't say that word. The Auschwitz? Auschwitz. Not the, the museum that's, it's, what's it called? The Jewish Heritage Museum or something like that in D.C. In D.C., yeah, I haven't been either. I don't know that I could go. I heard it's very, very, very hard. Is it? Yeah, I don't don't know that I could go. Once the trucks were full, they drove the children down the street to a mass grave that all the parents in town were forced to dig, and they could hear gunfire as her playmates tumbled into the mass grave. Could you imagine that? Like you had to dig that hole, and then your kid, you could hear them getting shot. I I can't. Even wrap my brain around it. After this, Tola was no longer allowed to leave the room. A sheet was put up over the window, and she was not allowed to go near the window at all. During the day when her parents would go to the factory, she would be alone in the dark room all day, starving with no food, toys, or books, just her alone with her thoughts. She said that was, like, the worst time of Yeah, because she thing. couldn't even move. Yeah. And she literally had nothing in the room. It was, like, a bed... Nothing. Not because yeah, they toy. couldn't have any paraphernalia. Right. Like if they came in, saw yeah. books or anything like that. I I don't even know what. Like she was four, f- almost five, maybe at this point. I I can't even. Like the fact that she, she did. She listened. Well, she knew she had to. But. Yeah, but still, a five-year-old listening. Yeah, like yeah. I mean. Ugh. After a few weeks, they were told to pack up pack up their stuff, and the men and women were put on separate train cars. And they just walked out with Tola. They were like, we don't know what's going to happen, but they just walked out with her, and she was the only kid there, and nobody said anything. It's huh? like, the, the, the like, I'm telling you, the fact that these people survive this is insane. It, I was like, I, when you said they told them to pack up, I'm like, oh, my God, what'd they do? Like, and that That's what I was when I was said, reading. I was like, oh, my God, how are they going to get her out of here? Yeah, like, I was like, did they put her in a duffel? What yeah. they like? They just walked out with her and nobody said anything. They, like, treated her like she was an adult. It was, I don't, (laughs) it's so crazy. Oh, my God. The women were packed about 150 to a car with standing room only in the sweltering heat. Tola was so hot and thirsty that she was delirious and fell asleep, leaning against the woman in front of her. After 36 hours, they arrived in Auschwitz. Tola was overwhelmed by the chaos once they got off the train. She was dehydrated and exhausted, and Auschwitz was enormous. The camp was designed to hold more than 120,000 prisoners, and there were people everywhere. So this train ride was crazy. They were, like, seriously stuck in there, like, worse than cows. Like, you wouldn't even put cows in something like that. Oh, my God. And she couldn't, she, like, she couldn't even move. For 36 hours, she had to stand there. 
And just they just had to like urinate on themselves oh, and everything. God. And she said the smell was awful. And there was like one tiny little window with bars on it. That's all like the air they were getting. And tons of people died on the way there, obviously. Tola's mother left her with a suitcase and told her to wait there while she found her father. When the mother returned, she said that her father wouldn't be staying in Auschwitz. He was being sent to da- Dachau. Da- da- Chau. He was only stopping in Auschwitz to be tattooed. That's another camp. Tola and her mother were stripped and searched. They searched for weapons or any sign of illness or weakness. The weak and ill were sent off to the ga- gas chambers. Then they had their head shaved. Then Tola and her mother went to another like area and they had their head shaved down to the stubble mm. and were sent to their barracks. Tola described the barracks like a big barn and they were stuffed in there like sardines. Like they had to share beds with other women. Oh, God. They were given a can and a spoon and told that they would get a little soup and a piece of bread twice a day. They were only allowed to use the bathroom twice a day, once in the morning and once at night. Otherwise, they would be punished. The bathrooms were all holes in the grounds with plywood around them, and they were made for adults. So Tola had to be very careful not to fall in. Oh. For months, they lived in a routine of sleep, wake, latrine, eat, appell, which is roll call, and repeat. Until one day when Tola had to go to the bathroom so bad that she ran up to the wooden platform and slipped through the hole into the slurry. She was stuck up to her knees and there were rats swimming around squealing. Tola was screaming as her mother and the other women tried to pull her out. Her mother holds her off, but because they didn't have soap, the smell lingered for days. Oh, gosh. And not to mention how, like, sick she could have gotten. Well, she is. Oh, no. <laughs> Not long after her fall into the latrine, she fell ill. She had so much pus in her eyes that they would glue her eyes. Her eyes would be, like, glued shut. <sighs> like, she couldn't even see. She would have to, like, hold on to see. Yeah, she had, like, E. coli in yeah. her eyes. Her throat was swollen and dry, and her jaw locked up, making it impossible to eat. Tola knew what happened to six people, so she didn't tell anyone, not even her mother. Five-year-old, she knew, like, I know the sick people die. I'm not telling anyone that oh my and she was sick not like oh I have yeah, a headache. yeah. She, well she had e coli <laughs> yeah. she, she had like oh my god everywhere yeah um but her mother noticed and soon the other woman noticed and tola was taken away she woke up days or weeks later in an infirmary infirmary and she had scarlet fever and diphtheria she stayed in the infirmary a week longer and then was sent to kinderlager which was the kin- kids camp mm-hmm the children's camp was much like the barracks she was in with her mother. She saw a few kids she knew from Talmashuf, and that was a comfort, but she missed her mom so much. Starvation was the hardest thing to deal with in the children's camp. So they're in the same camp, but she's in a different barracks. Okay. It's like a, a bit of a walk away. They got less food, and Tola wasn't getting an extra serving of bread from her mother. Children died of starvation constantly. One night, the girl she shared a bed with died— and when she woke, and Tola woke up to her cold body. Oh, my. She, like, they were sleeping, like, together in the same bunk. She knew she was responsible for taking care of the problem, so she just carried her outside and threw her in a pile with the other children who had died during the night. So, Ugh. and she was 12 years old. The girl that was in the bed with her was 12. Oh, my god! So this little five-year-old malnourished girl had to drag this 12-year-old's body. Holy moly. And throw her in a pile of other dead kids. Oh, my God. Early January of 1945 brought the beginning of the end of Auschwitz. American planes began bombing factories outside of Auschwitz, and while 
This brought danger to the prisoners. They knew that it meant liberation might be coming soon. By mid-January, the Russians were just days away from Auschwitz, and the Germans began evacuating. First came Birkenau, Birkenau, (laughs) where the trains stopped. I should know how to say these words, but where the trains stopped to drop off new prisoners. So that's in Auschwitz, but it's, like, Mm -hmm. so big that they broke it into different, like, sections. Yeah, like sections. Mm -hmm. Birkenau held all of the gas chambers. They blew up all but one gas chamber and proceeded to destroy all records and files. But what about the 60,000 prisoners that remained? They had all witnessed the war crimes perpetrated by the Nazis. On the first day, they gathered 5,000 women and children and started marching them westward toward toward Germany. Many did not have shoes or winter clothing, and any that were too weak or sick were shot. Mm. And this is like in January, so January yeah. in Germany. I'm it's sure it's freaking freezing. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I mean, I don't know if their seasons are the same as ours. But are they? I think they are because they talk about it being really cold. Oh, okay. On January 25th, 1945, panicky shots rang out across Auschwitz. Tola cowered in her barracks with the other children. She heard her German captors shouting and their dogs growling, and suddenly the barracks door burst open and a woman walked in who Tola didn't recognize. She looked terrible. Her features were dis- distorted and malnourished. <laughs> her features were distorted by malnutrition. Yeah, it's like <laughs> Her face was little more than a skull covered in parchment-thin skin. Mm. Her eyes had retreated into their sockets, but her body was puffy. Starvation did that to a person. It made their flesh swell. Tufts of dark brown hair sprouted from beneath a piece of cloth fashioned into a scarf in a futile attempt to seal in some warmth. Tola, it's me, Mama, said the woman, crouching down to take her child's face in her hands. I was incredulous, remembers Tola. I hadn't seen Mama's face for so long that I had forgotten what she looked like. Tola felt a wave of relief sweep over her. Oh, that made me tear up. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on. <laughs> That's so sad. I can't even imagine like not not having, especially in that. I mean, I can't imagine going through it with your mom, let alone not having her. And then she, it took her so long she didn't even know who she was. And having like a kid that age right now is like ugh. just ugh. It's awful. Her mother pulled her out of the barracks and told her that the Nazis were rounding up their prisoners for a long march into Germany, hundreds of miles away. She pointed down at her red raw ankles and her feet wrapped in sodden rags. I can't walk, she explained. I'm going to be shot. Maybe you will make it. You might survive the march, but this is not a world for children. I don't want you to to survive alone. So let's try to hide. There's a chance we can survive together, and if we die, we'll die here together. Will you come with me? Tola's mother led her to the camp infirmary, where scores of beds were occupied by the dead and dying. She went from bed to bed until she found the warm corpse of a young woman who had just died. Then she told her daughter to climb into the bed with the corpse and hide beneath the blanket. No matter what you hear, do not move until I return. Tola heard shooting and screaming as patients were hauled from their beds and shot. Soon a soldier approached her bed. He moved slowly and deliberately. Tola held her breath so the blanket wouldn't move. He took what seemed like an eternity to make sure her bedmate was dead. Then he finally moved on. After a while, the infirmary went quiet and Tola just laid there. She trusted her mother and wasn't going to move until she came back. Suddenly, the smell of smoke permeated the air and Tola's lungs started to fill with smoke. Suddenly, the blanket was pulled off the bed and her mother grabbed her and said, 
Quick, we've got to get out of here. They've set the building on fire. Once outside the infirmary, all the buildings were on fire and no, there were no German sh- soldiers left. What other prisoners who had managed to hide came out and wandered with Tola and her mother. Food was the only thing they needed more than anything else, so they raided the storerooms and everyone ate until they were full for the first time in years. Oh, my God. That probably tasted, even though it was probably garbage. But so yeah, it was like canned so meat and yeah. stuff. But I'm sure they didn't care. Yeah. That night, Tola and her mother returned to the adult barracks and climbed into a bunk together. It was the first time in months, in five months, that she was able to snuggle up next to her Aww. mama, and she felt. Oh my god, that makes me choke up. Okay. And she fell into the most tranquil, secure sleep that she had enjoyed in ages. Hmm. Two days later, on January twenty seventh. 1945, the Russians arrived. Prisoners were dancing. Women and men kissed the soldiers on their cheeks, and others fell to their knees and kissed the boots of the victorious Russians. The soldiers hugged the prisoners and returned their kisses. A giant soldier picked up Tola and held her over his head with a big grin on his face. Tola looked down at her mother, who was smiling, too. They were finally free. I have goosebumps. I know. They stayed in Auschwitz until April when the Red Cross finally came in and gave them a stamped document offering free passage on Polish public transportation. Now, this is crazy to me. They stayed there until April. This was January 27th when Uh they were finally, the Russians came. And they had to stay there until April, just Mm. living in the barracks, but at least they were eating and stuff. Yeah. And they said that the, um, so like, she was talking about how the Russians were making all this food and... Tola went out like the next day and wanted to eat all this meat that they were cooking and stuff. And her mom was like, no, you cannot do that because we have been starving for so long. You will like you could kill yourself doing that. Could you imagine? She would have been so sick. Yeah. And so her mom was like, first we eat bread and then the next day they ate a little more. And then by like day five, she was allowed to have like a little meat. Yeah. Um, But people were like, yeah, like throwing up diarrhea, just in, co- oh, in yeah. total pain, some even people even died from, like, feasting. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Because your body, your body yeah. can't process all that if it and, hasn't had food in years. And Tola's never had that kind of food. Oh, my God. I mean, she talks about eating an egg when she was, she was somewhere and she got an egg. And she was like, oh, my God, I had never eaten egg. And she had it for, like, a, little, like a few weeks. They were able oh to get God. an egg. And she said to this day she still loves eggs because it, like, <laughs> reminds her of that. So, yeah, they gave her this, like passport or document that she can then travel back on public transportation to Tamashu. Tamashu. <laughs> I didn't write mm-hmm. it. Which is re- weird to me. Like, you got to find your own way back. Well, they probably were like, there were so many people probably. that I guess that's true. They couldn't like. They were just like, yeah, they, they didn't have anywhere to put them or like. Yeah. So it's just. They gave them free transfer tra- tra- <laughs> free transportation in case they did have some place to yeah, go. Maybe I guess you're right. Um, but she said, "Yeah, it was like a long way back, and it was it was rough traveling, you know, yeah, because sure. people they were still in Germany, and then in um, well, I guess they were in Poland. They hated them. Oh, so it wasn't easy to get. Yeah, away. so they they yeah. faced like still a lot of." Um, Mm. racism and whatnot but Tola's mother so when they get back um, to town she can't find any of her family and she kind of becomes like despondent they're like living in this she found this cellar like on somebody's piece of property Mm -hmm. and was like living in the cellar with 
Tola, and because it was like the only warm place. And then finally, um, the her dad's there's like a Red Cross center set up, and you could go there every day and see like who's put their name on a list that they're coming back to town. Uh-huh. Like I don't know how they got that information, yeah. but. So she would go there every day to see if, like, her family was coming back and whatever. Mm-hmm. So her um, dad's three sisters come back, and they end up getting a house. Um, but there were still, like, people being attacked in the streets by the Polish and the oh German. Gosh. And one of the aunts was actually shot and killed by a gang of Polish men. Good grief. After months of a difficult life in Tomaszów, the family finally got some good news. Tola's father was coming home. There was a lot of joy in the house, and Tola was so happy to be reunited with her papa. When her father returned, he forced Tola to go to school. She was now seven and a half and had had no formal education. Tola went to school for two days, but on the second day, the kids started throwing rocks at her and yelling, You dirty Jew, why are you alive? You dirty Jew. And Tola didn't go back. Her mother had become so depressed that she was no longer leaving her bed or eating. All 150 of her relatives had died, and they weren't coming back, and she just couldn't cope. Mm. Tola's father made the decision to move the family out of Tomaushuf against her mother's wishes. They moved to Berlin and then to a displaced persons camp in Landsberg am Lech, west of Munich in the American zone. This camp was amazing, and it really helped them to start recovering from their trauma. But the camp was just at a, like a staging point, and then they um, would move them on to like either um, Palestine or to America. Oh, okay. But when they got ready to move, they were going to the U.S. And when they got ready to move, um, they found out Tola had TB. Oh no! And so she had to go to like some um, sanatorium for nine months up in the mountains by herself oh, to recover from it. I know, isn't that crazy? Although life, so they finally get to America when she's 11. Although life wasn't easy as immigrants in New York City, Tola lived a pretty happy life. Her mother never did recover from the trauma of the war and losing her family, and she died in her sleep at the age of 45. They think it may have been a brain aneurysm from trauma or from grief. Tola eventually married Mayer, I don't know how to say it, M-A-I-E-R, Meyer? Mm. Friedman on June 11th, 1960, and ch- changed her name to Tova. So she's now Tova Friedman. They went on to have four children and lived in Israel for 10 years before returning to the U.S. in 1977 and settling in New Jersey. Tola was a teacher but went back to school in her 40s to become a social worker, which is what she originally wanted to do. She dedicated her life to helping Holocaust survivors and others who had suffered from traumatic childhoods in war-torn countries. Oh my God! I a can't tw- imagine. I know how to process. How do how do you even process that yourself to be able to help other people? Like, I mean, I know it probably helps her to help other people. Yeah, like you know, it's her healing. Well, she talks about um, she met a therapist, and it changed her life when she was like in her. I think it was like her early twenties. Oh, okay, and she's like, I mean, she still sees her. I think like it changed her life that much. A 2020 survey revealed that two thirds of young Americans have no idea how many. Jews died in the Holocaust, and almost half couldn't name a single concentration camp. 23% believed the Holocaust to be a myth or exaggerated. A similar survey in Europe is in 2018 suggested a third of Europeans knew just as little. Six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust, including 
one and a half million children and babies. Oh my God, million. One, yeah, six. That's just million. children. That's six million total, and one and a half million were children. That's just. I just. How do you kill a kid? I just don't even get it. And they they liked it. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. They they yeah gloated about it. So um, I got 99.9% of this information from the book, The Daughter of Auschwitz, My Story of Resilience, Survival, and Hope by Tova Friedman. Mm. And it was an amazing, like, it seriously changed. I think it changed me a little. You know what I mean? Really? Yeah. Like, I didn't know much about the Holocaust, but it was it was a really, really moving book. Ugh. So I suggest you read it. I know it is a hard read, but I only read. I only read at night. I mean, so I don't know how. I don't know how. I I surprisingly didn't have any nightmares, Uh and I did read most of it at night. But it might just be how it's written. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, being that I know it's kind of what's going to happen, I might be able to read it. It just depends. Sometimes I have really weird dreams. Sometimes I have nightmares. Sometimes nothing bothers me. It just depends. I know. I'm the same way. So I don't know. I have no rhyme or reason for why. It ha- I know that when I f- go back to bed in the morning sometimes after I walk Penelope, um, when I, I have weird-ass dreams <laughs> yeah. when I go back to sleep I like know. that. I mean, I'm like, what in the world? I wake up having just bizarre dreams. This thing, it's not plugged in again. Really? Oh, Are you hitting not. it with your chair? I must have. Sorry. Oh, there you go. Is that better? Yeah. Let me make sure it's plugged in. Okay. But yeah, I mean, just her mom's like resilience. And I, it was like... Once she got her child to safety, it was like she was done. You know what I mean? Well, like, yeah. Because, all all yeah, her life was drained out of her. Well, and just like all the stuff that she had to, you know, just her, what she had to do with her nieces, how she almost died with her daughter. Like she right. probably thought she was dead when they got shot up, like sitting in, yeah, like hiding, you know, and then when they walked out that door with her after all the kids were taken yeah, away, exactly. you know, that she, she, probably, she just knew yeah. that they were going to shoot her. And you just never knew, like you could be walking down the street and just be shot. I mean, people were shot for like looking at the Germans in the eye or not moving to the side of the road. I just, I can't even, I, yeah. it blows my mind. It's amazing that they survived. Like all the little ways that I'm, I was like, I obviously knew she survived when I was reading the book because yeah. she wrote the book, but I was still like, how are she going to survive this? Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. Like, how are they getting out of this? Yeah. yeah. That's it's a insane. phenomenal story. Yeah. It was really, really good. That is a phenomenal story. Do you have a, Did you put it on your Kindle or do you have the hard co- copy? I put it on my Kindle. Oh, okay. I might look into it. Yeah, you can probably bar- borrow it from the library. Yeah, I probably can. That's a good idea. So, you want to take a break and <sighs> yeah. eat some dinner? I kind of lost my appetite now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, we'll take a break. <laughs> All right. All right. All right, you ready? You ready? <laughs> We're back. We're back. Oh, I had a yummy, cool. healthy dinner. It was no calzone from Fabio's. That's for damn sure. But it was still pretty good. <laughs> I had a salad from Chipotle with no rice on it. Chipotle. Or cheese. No rice or cheese. <laughs> it's just like, you're like, womp, womp. <laughs> you're starving by the time you get home. <laughs> um, okay. So today, I'm going to tell us about another... Um, Badass woman, um, Mia Yamamoto. So Mia Yamamoto was born Michael Yamamoto in 1943 oh. at the Poston, Arizona, World War II internment camp. 
when you oh were, my god that's so weird i know when you were talking about i know it, it's so weird that when you started talking about I'm like oh my god i'm talking about somebody but this, they didn't have it i mean i'm sure it was shitty there but it wasn't anything like yeah right yeah. um her parents were among 17,000 american civilians of japanese ancestry who were imprisoned by the u.s government at poston after the japanese bombing of pearl, Har- pearl harbor now, I'm pretty sure I'm saying that right. P-O-S-T-O-N. Pearl I think Harbor? it's Poston. No, I know how to say Pearl Harbor, <laughs> bitch. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Poston. Um, so overall, this is a number that blew my mind. More than 127,000 Japanese Americans were imprisoned in 10 concentration camps during this period. Wow. 127,000 people. That's crazy. They were American citizens or they were they had the legal right to be here. Yeah, right. And they were put in. I, it blows my mind. Her mother was a registered nurse and her father's a lawyer. So, you know, they were an active part of the community and just ripped away. So, like, then I was reading this and I was like, well, what did they do with all these jobs? Like. Oh, right. Yeah. Like, all, well, these people were like, I mean, they were like value part of the community yeah right like you know they weren't just not no matter what they were doing they were still valued human beings especially like a nurse and what what, what did he do he's a lawyer oh yeah so they were like really educated and everything sorry i gotta take a sip this drink is so good um so anyway i have to make that for chris so um yeah so i I, it made me wonder what they did oh my god there's a spider behind me uh, not anymore bitch i just killed her Ew. Yeah, I did. Don't eat it, Lynn. Oh, my God. Why are you eating it? I'm still hungry. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so her, yeah, so, like, I, what did they do? What, what Like, how did businesses survive yeah, without right. all these people? With, Losing all these with people. 127, let, we even just say, let's just say even if it was 120 or, like, 110,000 people out of the workforce. Yeah. Just like, Were they all adults? No. No. No, well, she was born there. So, yeah, yeah. which is like she was born in prison, which is awful. So Mia says her father didn't talk about Poston his entire life, but her mother told vivid stories about the tragedy of the forced incarceration of an entire community. It's just so sad. Um, One one of the stories Mia recalls her mother telling was about how her father was an attorney and he would go around the camp saying, I've read the Constitution. They can't do this to us. He's like, yeah, no shit. He's like, you can't put people in jail just because of their race. And then, you know, Mia in an interview said, of course, he was wrong. Race matters and it still matters. Oh, today, yeah. Oh, as yeah. It does they back still put then. people in jail because of their just, race. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. They pull them over everything. So her family's experiences in the camp and her father's subsequent exclusion from whites only Los Angeles Bar Association is what began her understanding of racial injustice in the legal system from an early age. So he couldn't he couldn't participate in the in the bar association. He, I'm having deja vu. Did you just do someone like this? Well, I did do. I did. Um, was an Elaine? Um, what was her name? Hold on. I just drew a blank on her name. Um, Evelyn Yashimura. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But it was very similar. I was they're like, both, wait a they're second. They're both from like L.A. area and stuff like that. Yeah. So I. Okay. Yeah, but um, she she was not. She was a, born a woman and still is a woman. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. Right. Okay. Um, so Elmer Yamamoto, her dad, so he had his own claim to fame 
as the plaintiff of a 1944 challenge to the forced removal of Japanese Americans. He later consolidated his case with the federal district court case of Ochikubo, Ochikubo versus Bone Steel. So a little bit about this case is kind of interesting to me. Um, or not, because my computer has decided not to go up and down. Here we go. <laughs> the plaintiff, George Ochikubo. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. It's Ochikubo. The plaintiff, George Ochikubo, was the child of Japanese immigrants from Oakland, California, born in 1911. He became a dentist before World War II, (laughs) and he and his family were forced from their home into detention at the Tanfrin Assembly Center in the spring of 1942, and then at the the Central Utah Relocation Center in the fall of 1942. In the summer of 1944— Ochikubo became convinced that there were no longer any military there's no longer any military necessity for the continued exclusion of Japanese Americans from the West Coast. He retained Los Angeles civil rights attorney civil rights attorney AL Weirin to file a lawsuit contesting the continued policy of mass exclusion. The defendant was Major General Charles Bonesteel who was of who was, as of June 1944, the commanding general of the Western Defense Command. I don't know why I was trying to say a different word. Um, The federal lawsuit filed in 1944 in the U.S. District Court in Los Angeles challenging the continued mass exclusion of all Americans of Japanese ancestry from the West Coast. When the mass exclusion ended in January 1945, the lawsuit shifted to challenge the Western Defense Command's exclusion of specific individuals. The court resolved the case in an early, early in summer of 1945 on procedural grounds without deciding the, loss, the lawfulness of the individual exclusion program, which makes me crazy. Their lawsuit sought a court order barring the military from enforcing the mass exclusion orders that had been implemented in 1942 under the authority of Executive Order 9066. So her father, like, filed his own case, and then yeah. he was lumped into this other one. Uh, so he made a name for himself. So her father also um, practiced in the segregated bar for his entire career until he died in 1957. Oh, wow. So he was, like, practicing law with only, um, Other like, Asian blacks, Americans? Asians, oh, yeah, yeah, Latina. So when they say I, um, West Coast, do they just mean, like, actual like people on the west coast or does it go like inland at all do you know what states it was no i didn't know i don't know if it yeah if it what it included i mean how far west it went i don't know okay so after the war mia's family returned to california they settled in east la a predominantly latinx and chicanx neighborhood so (laughs) i did a lot of research (laughs) on this and i'm like it's like C-H-I-C-A-N-X. And I was like, how do you pronounce that? So Andrew, you know, speaks like six languages yeah. or maybe even more. And I was like, how do you pronounce it? He's like, I don't know. I've never seen that word. But it's it was – so Latinx we still use today. Yeah, People right. use today. But um, the Chicanx was also it – was, it was a way that they were identifying without just saying – I did. I did. Went down a little bit of a rabbit hole. They were like, there was only a form. You're either black or white. And then they started adding brown. And then they were like, but we're not really brown. Like Asian people aren't brown. Right. Yeah. And 
you know, not all Latin people are brown. Right. So it's, it was like this whole thing. So that's how they were identifying it at that time. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Latinx and Chicanx. Chicanx. So that would be like Asian or other? Yeah. Yeah. Like I think the Asian po- population. Wow. Mia said for Japanese Americans coming out of camps, this this is qu- her quoted, for Japanese Americans coming out of the camps, that tradition of racial exclusion was very was a very specific experience. Mia and her siblings were often the target of racist taunts and even physical attacks. She also stated the level of hatred that people still had towards the Japanese was palpable. She said, I was pretty careful about not speaking Japanese. I didn't want to advertise that. Oh, yeah. She also said, I certainly experienced a lot of discrimination. Being Japanese was probably the most uncool thing you could imagine post-war East, East Los Angeles. Um, additionally, in an interview, Mia stated, with the queer identity, of course, you find out you're trans around, oh, five years old, usually. Your early growing up is torture. You're trying to fit into a place where you don't fit in, and you start to believe there is no place for you, especially trans kid because trans kids, because that's a pretty minuscule minority. So, you know, like the – so she knew by the time she was five that she was – something wasn't right. Yeah, right. Um, she knew that – she was having these other feelings and couldn't identify them. And, and you just I can't imagine the struggles like she was facing as a Japanese child. Right. At that time. And then on top of that, you're a transgender. Her identity and Japanese her sexuality. Yeah. And yeah. It just That's has awful. to be so hard, especially she had like all these brothers that were. So she and that brings me to this. She brings she grew up with four brothers and one sister. She once stated, I think being a queer kid is different. You grow up differently and your brothers treat you differently because you have a different, I guess, what you would call style. My brothers were tough. But I will say this. Having to fight my brothers really taught me how to fight. I really learned how to take care of myself on the street. It was really rough in L.A. like at this time. A lot of gangs and stuff like that. She remembers resenting her older brothers, calling them bullies and gangsters. They fought viciously with each other and then turned their violent games onto younger children, the younger children in the family. I learned to fight back, she says. What I lacked in size and strength, I made up for in ferocity. But my identity was becoming more and more divergent from my body. Mia and her brothers found a sense of shared purpose and identity among the local Mexican gangs. This served to deepen Mia's sense of solidarity with people who were otherwise labeled as worthless by society. Her grades were less than satisfactory, but she managed to graduate from high school. Her race was not only aspect of her was not the only aspect of her identity that created challenges. From an early age, Mia knew the gender she'd been assigned at birth aligned didn't align with her true identity. When she was in her teens, Mia read about Christine Jorgensen, the first publicly out transgender woman in the U.S. She was quoted as saying, I remember thinking, there's another person in the world who's just like me, she says. Excited, super excited. She ran and showed her mother the newspaper clipping, and her mother immediately burst into tears. So she said, I realized then that feeling uncomfortable with my gender was taboo. Um, I wonder why her mother had burst into tears. Because she didn't probably knew it, but didn't want to hear it. You yeah. know, like was probably. Oh, that's true. Yeah. From that moment, she learned to dive, to drive those feelings underground. You try to overcompensate to prove yourself to this. This is something you can overcome, she said. So at this point, music became a solace. She joined the Glee Club in high school and sang in her church choir. 
Years later, when Mia started working as a public defender, she was approached to join a country rock band as its lead singer. Playing music for people was her most joyous thing, she said. And so I have a little clip from um, the band. A country rock band? Is that what you said? This, well, this is, this song. This is a tribute song to one of the band members that died. But this is the band. So I assume that she's the lead singer in this. So Wow. It's kind of cool. Yeah. So I just thought I'd play that for you because I thought it was kind of cool. For the next several years after high school, she suffered bouts of severe depression and entertained suicidal thoughts. She enrolled in L.A. County College, L.A. City College, and got all Fs the first two semesters. Oh, my God. In the the back, first two semesters the she kept going? two semesters. <laughs> I'm like, uh, in the back of her mind, this is funny, she thought she was following her father's footsteps, pursuing law, but possibly. But the possibility seemed a little out of reach. It's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. I mean, she was probably just so depressed and so like, oh, I'm sure, just yeah. not in a good place. After flunking out of LACC, Mia worked in a grocery store full time for a year. Her gender dysphoria intensified with age. Upon graduation from Cal State, which she ended up going to, University of Los Angeles in 1966. Searching for a solution or a path forward, she enlisted in the Army and was deployed to Vietnam. In 1968, after her time in the Army, Mia enrolled, enroll led, is what I have here. In 1968, <laughs> after her time in the Army, Mia enrolled in US, UCLA School of Law, where she founded the Asian Pacific Islander Law Students Association and organized with black Chicanx. Chicanx <laughs> and gay law <laughs> students for social justice causes. She oh, wow. also worked with black and Latinx students, student unions, to demand the university hire more faculty of color, establish, establish ethnic studies courses, and commit resources to admit uh, to admit more students of color. Which is so funny because that's what um, that's what the other woman I did. Yeah, right. Yeah, she did the whole thing too. She was like went to the school and was like, no, you're going to start, you know, incorporating classes for people of color, people people of other races. Wasn't that at a school, like, nearby? Yeah, it was, yeah. I don't remember the exact school, but it was in L.A. <laughs> or in California. She said she was reminded of her dad when she was stationed in Vietnam because she read a book about uh, Ho Chi Minh. Like Ho Chi Minh, her father had also read the Constitution and wrote to President Truman, believing that Americans would surely take their side against the attempts by the French to recolonize Indochina. Neither her dad nor Ho Chi Minh understood how much race matters. Although she had originally volunteered for the Army, by the time Mia returned two years later, her experiences in Vietnam, witnessing wartime atrocities, which she would later describe as the absolute most extreme of male toxicity, had changed her mind. She went straight into the anti-war movement because she was so guilt-ridden about what she had been part of and been a part of in Vietnam. The movement for racial and social justice was all around that as well. She states in interviews that she still is guilt-ridden about this part of her life, the things she did and saw yeah, in I Vietnam. Bet. For the next three years, she worked as a poverty lawyer. Eventually, she went to work for the public defender's office. She felt as if she needed something to make her want to get up in the morning and feel a sense of purpose. And this work did that for her. 
Many of her clients were queer and trans sex workers facing drug and prostitution charges. Mia herself wasn't out at the time, but she would later recall feeling that she could easily have been in their position had she been living as an openly trans woman. There were a few close friends in whom she confided, and Mia would sometimes tell trans clients that she harbored the same feelings about her identity, but ultimately she worried that coming out would derail her career and jeopardize her clients' cases in the process. It's just like the, like the weight of the world. Yeah, her, right. You know? Their lives, she says, she was quoted as saying, their lives, their futures were on my shoulders. She said, <laughs> I didn't mean to say what I just said, but like, because but, I said she had the weight of the world on her shoulders. Oh. But I, was, I forgot about this. She said, if I transition, it would just pull the rug out from under them. So she was able to reassure her clients that she understood how to get how people get targeted and jailed because of their race since she was actually born doing some time. Oh, right. Due to her yeah. race, right? She was literally born in, in prison. She witnessed so much racial discrimination in her life, and she sympathizes with people of color who spend their lives coping with racism, racial exclusion, and racial violence. This made being a criminal defense attorney very important to her. Working for the poor people in the criminal courts gave her the sense of purpose she longed for. After 10 years as a public defender, Mia left to form her own private practice specializing in criminal defense law. She began taking on death penalty cases in which she had to quite literally fight for her clients' lives. At the same time, she continued to explore ways to embrace her gender identity in private, going to trans nightclubs, as well as group and individual counseling sessions where she could present as a woman without judgment. She started going to therapy as she could finally afford it. The one thing she learned being male to female transgender in therapy was that it was really a very dangerous and risky journey. But once you realize there are other transgender people in the world, it's incredible. It's an incredible incentive to stay alive. Just to be able to speak to another person and talk to them about the similarities and their experiences is incredibly cathartic, cathartic relief. Can you imagine that? Like nowadays it has to be easier because one, it's accepted. I mean, I'm sure it's still really hard, but it's more accepted now. And you have the Internet. Right, you like could reach out then, to other LGBTQ. Right, you plus, probably yeah. felt this way and didn't think anybody else felt that way, and you thought something was wrong with you. Right. Well, that's and when she got that article and was like, "Oh my gosh, like, yeah, I'm not the, the mom, only mom, one." Look, yeah, and and her mom just was like, "Oh gosh, yeah." I mean, it was because you know, and as a parent of somebody that's LGBTQ plus, um, I think that it's not that you're sad that they're telling you that. You're, I, for me, I was terrified of. For his safety, my yeah, son's safety. Right. And that, you know, that's something that freaked me out. And I mean, he definitely can take care of himself and he would. But it still doesn't make me feel any better that he's like, you know, in danger at certain right. points. Right. You in just want places. him to be like lay low and not. <laughs> yeah. Like you want your kid to be like. As just fit, yeah, like, yeah, just fit in not, and, yeah, and because, don't ruffle any feathers right. so that you survive. <laughs> well, like we were going to go to we went to St. Thomas and um, I and, you know, I wanted to I wanted him to go because I was we I went with my dad and my sisters and their partners and husband, partner, whatever. And I was supposed to bring my boyfriend and we had broken up. So I was going to bring Chris. I was like, how much fun is that yeah. going to be? And Chris is like, I can't go to St. Thomas. It's not safe. It's not a safe oh, really? place for me. Is it St. Thomas? Or was it Jamaica? I don't remember. I think it's 
Is it Jamaica? There's some places. I don't know if it was St. Thomas. Oh, wow. There's certain that. places that it's not very safe for gay pe- gay men to go. Yeah. So I don't, I you know, that. I don't know if it was St. Thomas. I can't remember. Anyway, so yeah, it's just crazy. So um, she realized she might die as a coward and a phony. So she said there were those were two things she hated in people. She hated herself even more because she was living a, f- a falsity and fear, living in falsity and fear. There had never been a transgender trial lawyer anywhere at least as far as she knew. Coming out transgender is more in your face than coming out as lesbian and gay because you're going to look and groom yourself so much differently than before. When this transformation happens in the trial courts, which are by law open to the public, then the transition is even more vividly public. Like most LGBT people, she had to consider and contemplate how she would be accepted by friends and family. But she also had to think about how her clients, colleagues, judges, juries, and everyone else was going to react. She decided that she was willing to lose everything and everybody she had ever known in order to live her truth. Wow. In 2003, Mia made the decision to publicly transition at age 60 on her 60th birthday. Holy shit. She was playing music for a fundraising party for some progressive cause or another. When the people decided to surprise her with the birthday party. So she was playing at some other event and a bunch of her friends showed up at the event and surprised her with a birthday party. <laughs> wow. She had all these people trying to tell her what a great guy she was. And she she said she felt anger in herself for having deceived them for so long. Oh, she decided at that exact moment she was this gives me goosebumps. She was coming out. No more hiding. No more lies. No more fakery. She started coming out to people at that specific occasion. She became the first openly transgender lawyer in California history. Wow, so that's, that gives me the chills. So yours was giving me horrible chills. This is giving me <laughs> good chills. I mean, even though she had a rough life, it still this makes me happy. Yeah. She offered to help her clients find a new attorney if they no longer wanted her service. Not a single one asked for a replacement. Really? Isn't that great? That's Which was shocking. True testament to her skill and care as a defender. Yeah. As a leader in Asian as a leader in Asian Pacific American LGBT they say LGBT here in these articles. Yeah. They don't say Q. This was written a while ago. But and legal community, she has tried over two hundred jury trials and represented thousands of clients accused of criminal offenses, including murder, assault, sexual offenses, drug offenses, theft white collar offenses and regulatory regulatory offenses. She has won a slew of awards and honors and served on two California judicial tasks for task forces and a presidential initiative. Mia remains a staunch advocate of human rights, particularly for people whose lives have been turned over by the criminal justice system and incarnate in I said incarnation in incarceration. She still operates her practice as a criminal defense attorney and works with international bridges for justice to increase legal protections for prisoners in developing countries. That's like amazing. That is. Mia Yamamoto. So this is a a law student um, at UCLA. Lindsay She said this about her. Mia Yamamoto is such a personal inspiration. To me, she represents the struggles and the successes of both the Asian Pacific American community and the LGBT community. Not only is she a great role model, it's clear that she really loves giving back to students as well. She'll always she's always willing to lend an ear and shoulder, an ear and a shoulder to anyone who needs it. Aww. That's her. That's really sweet. So she was fighting for like um for you know the 
she was fighting for the the little Tokyo. That was the same thing yeah. that um, I can't, I Evelyn her, Evelyn Yashimura. Yashimura. Yeah, so she was fighting for little Tokyo. She was like, "There's all this stuff." I was like, "I, I mean, there were so many things," and she was fighting, you know, for Japanese yeah. rights and such. And but Evelyn Yashimura, I don't think was Jap. Oh no, she her parents were in the Japanese. Yeah, they were in camp. The That's right. She wasn't, but her parents were. Um, it's sad, though, that she had to wait till she was 60 to come out. 60. Like, she didn't feel comfortable until then. I was like, oh, my gosh. It's, yeah. And I'm sure she only felt comfortable because she was, you know, established and she had money, I'm sure. And Yeah, because she could I mean? afford therapy. Right. Well, she, that's the other thing. She could afford therapy, right? So that was a big part of it. But that... if you're, like, a poor, you know, Asian-American person coming out as transgender, you're not going to make it back this... then, you know? This country is so that was in 2003. It still wasn't that easy in 2003. Oh no, to come it wasn't. Out. No, um, I. This country is. I was listening to something today on one of my podcasts about um, about like the cash bail and stuff like that. Yeah, there's like all these laws about cash bail, and our country is so designed for the rich people to survive and the poor people to stay to not survive. Oh, yeah, for sure. So like. If you can't afford bail, you just stay in jail, right? Yeah. So, and if you can afford bail while you're waiting, and they the speedy trial thing is anything but speedy. Oh, for sure. You know, yeah. and so poor people are going to sit in jail. They're going to lose their job. They're going to lose their house. They're while they're in jail because they're not working, yeah. so they're not making money, so they can't pay a lawyer. They can't. They're not going to have a home to go to because they're going to lose, lose it. Like their friends and family because right. they can't afford to come see them. Right, and and their lawyer and the, I mean their house. So if they lose everything in their house and they can't do anything about it, then they physically lose all their personal belongings. Right, while they're in jail, and then if they're found innocent, then they come out and what do they do? They are homeless. Yeah, and there's no like, oh, we're sorry about that. Here's some yeah. money. No. Yeah, I mean it's like it's yep. absolutely ridiculous. It's it's absolutely ridiculous that poor people can't survive in the same judicial system court system that oh, yeah. rich people i know it, it's, it's awful i never thought about it until i listened to this today and i was it blew my mind i'm like it's so unfair <laughs> it like, really is i mean it's i mean you or i if we were in jail we could probably get resources to get ourselves out on bail right like depending on right, what yeah. it was obviously but um you know there's plenty of people in this world that they can't that can't right. have nobody yep you know, and I mean, I, I could name five people right now that would not be able to raise the money or have the money yeah. to get out of jail on bail. Lynn. Lynn. <laughs> Penelope. <laughs> but I just am like, it blows my mind. It absolutely blows my mind. I know, so, it's very sad. Yeah. So she was fighting for these kind of people, too, yeah, because, right. you know, they were losing their they were losing their whole entire life and everything they had to, um, you know, the judicial system and incarceration like their lives are turned upside down because of it so you know she just helped all those people and well, good for her i hope cool. she's living a good life i know living her best life you out go, and proud you go girl <laughs> um so yeah that is well, good job Mia that yeah mine was pretty short today but yeah well was mine long, was so. extremely long yeah. so so well, it took me three weeks to write it yeah so. and i have i have a picture an old picture of her whole family which is kind of cool oh and I have yeah a couple of really we'll cool put that up on social media yes i'll post those speaking of social media speaking of social media can... <laughs> <laughs> do you like that music i was like where are you going with that <laughs> you can follow us on instagram on no ordinary women pod and facebook no ordinary women pod uh twitter 
No Ord, O-R-D, Women Pod, and... Tikataka. Tikataka. The Tikataka. The Tikataka at No Ordinary Women Pod. Shout out to um, Reed's... Was it Reed's Ginger Ale? Yeah, ginger beer. Ginger beer. Ginger ale. Ginger beer today for our delicious cocktails. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Hit that little plus sign up in the corner yep. and subscribe when you're listening. Yep. That really helps us out. Follow. And rate and review. Rate and review. Please, you guys, we need the reviews. Just tell us just anything you want to say. Just, yeah. I love you. You love me. Yeah. <laughs> We're a happy family. Yeah. So you definitely need to... Um, do that. You need to follow us and share. Please, please, please share with your friends. We we'll love you forever. Tag us when you share so we can, like, be so excited. We literally, like, jump up and down when people do stuff. Like, um, the message I got. Did we even talk about this? I, I posted it. The the woman who. Oh, yeah. Who, I was talking about people slide into my DMs. And I got a message from um, a follower. And I'm going to shout out to her. Hold on. I'm going to give her a name. But anyway, she reached out to me on my she friended me on insta and she said uh i just wanted to and this is what made me know that it was not a a um, bot a, yeah a bot or a creeper yeah, because some, she said why can't i find it Lynn likes the creeper so i, can't, yeah, I do creeper, love a creeper ahead. i go love ahead a creeper and slide into her dms why can't i find her oh here she is her name is katarina maybe uh, we shouldn't say her whole name Okay, I'll just say that. And then she knows who she is, Katerina. Anyway, she, I'm going to read you her tweet, her tweet, her message. Hi, Lynn. Hope you had a great Christmas. Just wanted to slide a DM from Portugal. Whoop, whoop. (laughs) (laughs) To tell you I listen and follow your podcast on on Apple and I've shared it with some friends. Keep up the good work. Best Katerina. uh, Katerina. And that, Katerina, that meant the absolute world to us. Absolute world to us. That's a pretty so name. we were. It is a beautiful name. We no were one like slid into my DMs though. So she slid into yours. She didn't. She friend you. Yeah, she didn't slide into my DMs. Okay, so. but you're not the one that was talking about people sliding your DMs. So well, she had to slide into my DMs. No one slides Don't be into jealous because Katerina <laughs> slid into my DMs and not yours, bitch. <laughs> if but you yes. want to slide into my DMs, anyone, please. I'm Please. Desperate. She wants dick pics. <laughs> <laughs> no, Lynn sends those to me all the time. I do. All the time. I all send the time. Lynn pe- um, pics of whale dicks. Whale dicks, <laughs> yeah. No, whale dicks, ooh, they're scary. They are weird looking. Them are scary dicks. So, yeah. So, we love that stuff. It makes our day. I was so excited about it. I posted it on our all our social media and was, like, bouncing off the walls. We were both pretty excited. So, we love yeah. that. Definitely share. And when you share with your friends, tag us so we know you're doing it and... We'll send you out some big kudos. So until next week, we'll see you later. Ta-ta for now. Bye. Bye.